it was, for most people in England, almost a miraculous deliverance. It was a sudden end to a national adventure that had spent 20 years curdling into a nightmare. It had started just as a row between the king and the pope, of the kind that was almost routine in the Middle Ages, but for reasons that were difficult to fathom for most English people, this had blown up into an existential conflict. And within a few years, Henry VIII's queen was being thrown out to make way for a scheming girl from the French court. And then it started to bite in the parishes. Everyone in the country was forced to swear an oath accepting the king's new marriage. Preachers started to insist that the king was now head of something they were calling the Church of England. Your parish priest started to mess with the order of service so that the Pope didn't get mentioned it anymore. Royal commissioners started nosing around, asking how much money your church had. And then the monasteries were closed and all their lands and all their goods taken and the shrines closed and the relics smashed. And there was a new service in English where suddenly you were supposed to pray against the detestable enormities of the Bishop of Rome. And then the old king died. And you wondered if things might go back to normal. But the new king, Edward VI, was just a boy. And there was no one to stop his council doing whatever they wanted. And so now the chantries were closed down, along with most of the schools and the hospitals. And the commissioners were back and they started stripping your church of everything of value. Then breaking down the rood lofts and the other statues. And they started messing with the coinage so that suddenly your money seemed to be worth nothing at all. And then they replaced the old service entirely with a new one in English where you mostly just had to sit and listen. And while a few fanatics and townspeople liked all of these changes, most of you were appalled and devastated. But what could you do? It's the king. And those who did speak out wound up in jail. And when the people in the north and then in Cornwall marched against it, they ended up with their heads in a noose. So all that you could do was endure it and pray that when the boy king grew up, he'd put these heretics and plunderers in their place. But now the boy's turning 15 and it's starting to look like he's one of the fanatics too and there's going to be no end to it. Old England is gone. And then come the new rumours that the king's sick that he's very sick, that the council have declared that the throne isn't going to pass to his sister, who anyone can see as the rightful heir, but it's going to go to some cousin who's married to the wicked Duke of Northumberland's son. That when the king dies, God forgive him, the Lady Mary is standing up and isn't going to accept this invented new queen. That crowds are coming out for her everywhere. That even in London, that Babylon of heresy, that people are turning on the so-called Queen Jane. And before anyone knew it, it was all over. The Lady Mary was queen. Bonfires were lit all over the country. And soon enough, the hopes were fulfilled, the mass was restored, the heretical bishops were driven out, her cousin, Cardinal Poole, came back to England after his 20 years in exile as the Pope's emissary and was soon made Archbishop of Canterbury. He led England back to where it should be, at the heart of Europe, reconciled to Rome, 
it's all over. And England's 20-year dalliance with the horrors of heresy would surely teach her to be faithful to Mother Church forevermore. After all, it's not as if England had ever shown any signs of this Romo-skepticism before. This was the country which through the Middle Ages had been proudly, maybe inordinately proud, that had been converted to the Christian faith by the initiative of a pope, Gregory the Great, who had famously seen blonde English boys in a slave market and had been told that they were Angli and said that they were not Angli but Angeli, angels. The English had been Rome's angels ever since, or close enough. The Pope had given William the Conqueror his crown, had made Henry II Lord of Ireland, and English kings had been famously loyal in return, from Richard the Lionheart on crusade to Richard II standing up for the Pope in Rome when the French set up their own puppet alternative in Avignon. Even Henry VIII, as a young man, had fought for the Pope's league against his enemies, and had written against that heretic Martin Luther. None of the anti-papal nonsense that you heard from the French. The only English king who'd ever fallen out with Rome was King John, and everybody knew that he was a wicked man who'd murdered his cousin and was brought low in the end. It was in England's blood and soil to be loyal Catholic Christians, faithful sons and daughters of the Pope and soldiers of Rome. And now at last the madness was over, and it could be so again. All of which is to say that when Mary Tudor unexpectedly became queen in the summer of 1553, she had a fair wind behind her. She was popular, and she was legitimate. It was true she was female, but then so were almost all of the serious alternative candidates. In fact, her gender was going to be a serious, maybe even a fatal political weakness. The problem was not so much being a queen in itself, but securing her succession. The only good route to do that was to marry and have a child in a world where it was uniformly assumed that wives should be obedient to their husbands. For a reigning queen to marry was a problem. None of the queens who reigned in England or Scotland in the 16th century found a good solution to it. But she probably found the least bad solution at least in principle. She married a foreigner, Philip of Spain, who took the title of king and has left us with, with coins like this. You can see the, the, the two heads facing one another and the, 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 the faded words Philip and Mary around the edge. Um, but thanks to his absence for much of the, much, much of the reign, um, he's not nearly as dominant in political life as he might have been. And a well-negotiated marriage treaty preserved England's independence to an impressive degree. If it wasn't for the fact that she was a 38-year-old woman with a history of gynecological ill health and a mostly absentee husband, it might all have worked out fine. But in fact, of course, although she was twice convinced that she was pregnant, she was not, and she died childless, most likely of a cancer that may well have been implicated in her fertility problems, a little over five years into her reign. And the bad news for those who'd celebrated her accession with such joy and relief was that it was all about to start again, because her heir was her surviving half-sister, Elizabeth, a Protestant, and it was all reversed. The Pope was thrown out, the church is once again stripped, the English service brought back, England's Catholic restoration hadn't been the end of a heretical nightmare. 
it was a brief respite from what was going to be a new world. And so, for a long time, these five years of Catholic England restored have been treated by historians as a curiosity, a throwback, a doomed attempt to turn back the clock. But as the records have been re-examined over the past few decades, we've come to a rather different view of Mary's short reign and of her doomed restoration. And in summary, that view is that right up to the point when it was cut short by her death, the effort was going pretty well. The parish churches, ravaged after the destruction under Henry and Edward, were being rebuilt. There was a lot to do. There was a lot of make, do and mend, like this example from the parish church of Ludham in Norfolk. You can see how there should be a life-size rood, a crucifix on top of that screen. Those take time, cost money, so instead they've popped up this board across the chancel arch and just painted a crucifixion scene onto it. This sort of thing testifies both to how much damage had been done and to the pious ingenuity of the people who are doing their best to make it good in short order. And while the parishes are rebuilt, Cardinal Pole, the Queen's cousin, her right-hand man, imposes new discipline on his clergy and is providing them with training materials and preaching resources. And there's even an artistic, an aesthetic revival. One of the finest composers of the day, Orlando de Lassa, was brought over from Flanders. In 1554, he wrote a motet in honour of Cardinal Poole and his work of bringing England to repentance and reconciliation. A motet that was sung in St Paul's Cathedral at the service of reconciliation between England and the papacy. Let's listen to it.
the text speaks of England's tears of repentance there at the end. But it also anticipates something that hadn't quite yet started, but which everybody knew at this point was about to begin. I mean the auspicious fires. Because for all the creativity of Mary and Paul's restoration, the, the vision that's conjured up by that music, they had a problem. A vocal, committed, and well-placed minority of the Queen's subjects had fervently embraced the heresies that her father and her brother had promulgated. If a truly Catholic England was going to be rebuilt, these people would have to be dealt with. And so Mary didn't merely throw those bishops and preachers out of office. She had them arrested, and she restored the old heresy laws, which allowed unrepentant heretics to be executed by burning. Pursuing these people with the full rigour of the law was not the only option open to her. Some of her Spanish advisers, despite their reputation for inquisitorial cruelty, advocated caution. One of them said it was better for heretics to live and to be converted. Feared that persecution might stir up trouble. It should be said that that was not a moral stance against persecution as such. It was a tactical preference. But as the motet indicates, burning heretics was a moral stance. This was a matter of principle, indeed of public safety, something to be applauded, not to be ashamed of. It was the lily-livered pragmatists who proposed turning a blind eye to the evils in their midst who seemed like the political cynics. But in the end, pragmatism and principle pointed in the same direction. Committed Protestants were a small minority of the English church and people, but they were energetic, they were vociferous, and they were implacable in their opposition to the regime. They simply had to be silenced, and that was hard. They could be driven out of the country. The regime certainly allowed people to escape when it could have arrested them. But exile did no more than muffle their voices. Being in exile was certainly very hard, but the exiles continued to be able to draw income from their property in England. The regime tried to stop it and failed. They settled in half a dozen German and Swiss cities and started to crank out printed propaganda, which was smuggled back into the country. And if exile failed to silence them, imprisonment was not much better. Tudor prisons were notoriously porous, principally because they were funded by prisoners paying the costs of their own incarceration, which meant that they virtually became their jailers' employers. Um, it therefore only took a little bribery to ensure that prisoners could send and receive letters or receive visitors or even make short trips outside. Even the most closely guarded prisoners managed at times to obtain writing materials and to smuggle out letters. The prison writings of the Marian Protestants fill several volumes in their modern editions, a testimony both to their quantity and also to how their words were cherished by their fellow believers outside. So if neither exile nor prison would shut these people up, what other option was there? Another line of reasoning led in the same direction. English heretics had a long tradition of breaking under pressure. Medieval English people arrested for heresy, of whom there were quite a few, had generally been timorous, virtually never persisting in their errors when recantation could have saved their lives. 
The Protestants who'd run ahead of Henry VIII's Reformation and had been arrested had been only a little braver. A few had stood firm, but many more, including some very prominent people, had tried to negotiate their way out of trouble with varying degrees of success and of principle. Mary's regime plainly expected that this pattern was going to resume. King Edward's chief minister, the Duke of Northumberland, when he was facing death at the beginning of the reign, followed the script precisely, abjectly recanted his Protestantism in an attempt to save his life, vainly, as it happened, since in his case the charge was treason rather than heresy. Several others were more successful, including famously one of King Edward's tutors. If a large number of others had joined them, matters would have turned out very differently. Recantation was the best possible outcome for the regime. Purity of doctrine is preserved, it's a propaganda coup, it's a public humiliation for the Protestants, and not least, a soul is snatched from the jaws of hell. If you're one of the bishops who is leading the anti-heresy campaign, then you might agree that a firm line is necessary, but there is no escaping for the fact, the fact that for you as a Christian minister to consign one of your own flock to death by burning represents a pretty disastrous pastoral failure. And so the regime expects recantations, it wants them, it works hard to secure them. Very senior members of the government spent days and weeks on end debating with prisoners, trying to win them round or to wear them down. And yet, against all expectations, many, most Protestants held firm, especially the leaders. Under Henry VIII, things had been different. The king's policy was ambiguous. The evangelicals' own beliefs were ill-defined. Now things were plainer and the divide was sharper. The exiles exhorted those in England to stand firm. Prisoners wrote to each other with the same message. And of course, once the executions had begun, they set a precedent which provided another motive to remain steadfast. The regime would undoubtedly have preferred it if Protestants had, as their advisers said, lived and been converted. But in the end, they decided that those who would not convert could not be allowed to live. The first burning of the Bible translator and London minister John Rogers took place on the 4th of February, 55. A series of others followed. In that first year of executions, almost all of those who died were the leading preachers, ministers, and theologians, amongst them four bishops. The Protestant cause was being decapitated. The last of this wave of leaders was the most prominent of all, Thomas Cranmer, Paul's predecessor as Archbishop of Canterbury, who, after a long and difficult process, which I'll be coming back to shortly, went to the fire in Oxford in March 56. The end of that first phase of the persecution marked a further debate within the government. Some wanted to leave it at that, for a time at least, to see what happened now that the head of the snake had been cut off. But Mary and Cardinal Poole and their most energetic enforcer, Bishop Bonner of London, decided to press their advantage. The symbolic purge now extended to the dead. German Protestants who'd taken refuge in England under Edward VI and who died there were exhumed and their bodies burned. And as for those who are still alive, the focus shifted to those who gathered in secret to hear and spread the word. These conventicles were correctly seen by the regime as critical to the Protestant resistance. Uh, the attack on these groups tended to produce mass executions as whole groups were arrested. And so the rate of deaths climbed, peaking in the summer of 1557. And from then on, it began slowly to fall. But the burnings continued until the very end of the, of the reign. Three men 
and two women were burned together in Canterbury on the 15th of November, 1558, two days before the Queen herself died. The exact total number of the victims of this purge is disputed. The best guess is something in the order of 290 people burned alive, plus another dozen or two who died in prison. And it should be said at least 800 who went into exile. By modern standards of mass killing, that may sound positively restrained. But in its own time, this was an unusually sharp bout of persecution. Not off the scale. I mean, the numbers executed in the Netherlands in the same period are comparable. But there's, there's, no one's doing much more than this. Still, atrocities are never just about numbers. The question is what these executions mean. And here we need to confront an awkward truth, which is that as a matter of policy, there's every reason to think that this was working. The dead preachers, bishops, and theologians may have been remembered as martyrs, but there is no denying that they had been successfully silenced. There may have been more groups of clandestine Protestants than the regime expected, but the fact that the numbers are starting to tail off suggests that they're not unlimited. Religious persecution sometimes works, especially when it's part of a wider program of reformation, and that's what seems to be the case here. If Mary had lived longer, if the policy had had more time, well, what would have happened? English Protestantism wouldn't have been eradicated quickly or easily. They weren't numerous, but they were determined and well-connected. The executions would have continued for the foreseeable future. Um, the regime might have had to become more ruthless. There's a number of cases from Mary's reign of Protestants who were saved from arrest or condemnation by legal niceties or the squeamishness of particular officials. A little less due process and a little more inquisitorial zeal might have been necessary. But what we're talking about is how long the inevitable victory would have taken and how complete it would have been. There would have been some bloodshed, but probably fewer deaths than in Elizabeth I's campaign against Catholics and her suppression of Catholic rebellions. Certainly far fewer than in the religious war which England's unfinished Protestant Reformation plunged the country into in the 1640s. One sign of the coming victory was that already in the 1550s, the Protestants were splintering under pressure. The exile communities fell out viciously amongst themselves between moderates and hardliners. The hardliners themselves split between mere radicals and actual revolutionaries. If everything had gone according to plan, that's the way that English Protestantism would have faded from view with their hands on one another's throats. But already in the 50s, there are also signs that not everything is working. The Protestants weren't going quietly. I've already mentioned their dismaying insistence on standing firm and dying rather than recanting. And what made this worse was that executions were, like most criminal justice in this era, um, acts of public theatre intended to have a salutary effect on the spectators. Trouble is, if you put your enemies on stage, it's hard to guard against the, the possibility of them stealing the show. And Protestants who were at the stake and their supporters gathered for them did their best to wrest these events to their own purposes. If prisoners, instead of being penitent or showing obvious fear, showed dignity, prayed for the queen and for one another, forgave their accusers, spoke calmly and convincingly of their faith, died in apparent peace with Christ's name on their lips, they could seize the moral high ground even as, even as the flames rose. 
It was certainly hard when you had seen a performance like that to deny that the Protestants were at least sincere. And in some cases, depending on the victims, this could be pretty effective. The English are used to burning heretics occasionally. This has been happening for 100 years or more. But they expected heretics to be opinionated peasants with eccentric views. Bishops, scholars, priests, in a very hierarchical society, that's a different game. There's also a definite squeamishness about burning women. Around a fifth of those executed under Mary are women, especially when you see whole congregations beginning to be rounded up. The execution of teenagers or old men is also liable to stir up unease. Don't get this out of proportion. What we have is worry about some unrest at executions. We don't have incidents like those in contemporary France or the Netherlands where condemned heretics were broken out of prison or even rescued from the stake by mobs. The worry seems to have been much more about small groups of Protestant agitators showing up to cause trouble than the mass of the crowd being won over. That applied even to the most vividly theatrical execution of all, the event which was probably Mary's single worst tactical mistake. Archbishop Cranmer, the architect of Edward VI's religious policy, creator of the Book of Common Prayer, is the regime's prize prisoner. His trial for heresy is a long, drawn-out process, and during 1555, kept in isolation under relentless pressure, Cranmer began to crumble. He'd never been as combative as some of his co-religionists, and his Protestantism had always been built around his conviction of the monarch's God-given authority. Now his queen is commanding him to return to Roman obedience. Over the winter of 1555-6, he signed a series of documents, each one recanting more unambiguously than before. The regime was on the verge of a spectacular coup, Cranmer publicly renouncing his heresies. And the opportunity is thrown away, and it seems thrown away by the Queen herself. Mary is determined that Cranmer should die. Her loathing for him is maybe entirely understandable. It's Cranmer who, 20 years earlier, had pronounced her parents' marriage void and had led England into schism. But as a penitent heretic, as a strict matter of law, his life ought to have been spared. The decision to kill him anyway looks unpleasantly like personal vengeance. It may be that the manifest injustice of the sentence changed his mind... Maybe the knowledge that his death was unavoidable removed the temptation to try to buy his life with recantations. Anyway, he returned to his Protestantism in the most decisive fashion possible, declaring at the stake that his right hand, which had signed the recantations, would burn first. He held it steadily in the flames until the smoke overcame him. It was the single most vivid and most memorable demonstration of sincerity at any of the executions. The regime's obvious confusion as it tried and failed to come up with a strategy to kill the story is matched only by the relief and enthusiasm with which Protestant propagandists seized on it. Because, of course, the battle for control of this theatre of execution didn't end when the fire was put out. Since the beginning of the Reformation, Protestants had been claiming that executed heretics were martyrs were witnesses to the faith, a momentous category that put them in succession to the martyrs of the early church. Their propagandists celebrated, burnished these stories, 
images like this, this is the front cover of the first um, English Protestant martyr book from 1546, shows the martyr, the, 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 this, this lady, Anne Askew, dressed not in normal 16th century clothing, but in sort of quasi-Roman robes and carrying a martyr's palm of victory. And notice, curled around her feet, the dragon with the human face and the Pope's crown on his head. When Mary becomes queen, Orlando Lasso wasn't the only one to anticipate that the fires would soon start up again. Protestants in exile were celebrating their martyrs well before anyone was actually killed. In particular, a young English scholar in exile in the Swiss city of Basel, a man by the name of John Fox, took up the mantle of his mentor John Bale, the author of the book we were looking at a moment ago, and began planning a much more ambitious work of martyrological history. The first versions he published in Latin, first in 1554, another one in 59, are, are just ancient history, claiming the heretics of the Middle Ages for the Protestant cause. With a Swiss friend, he was working on a giant Latin martyr book that would bring together Protestant stories from across Europe. But then Mary's death brings him back to England and changes the nature of his project. He was urged to produce a history specifically of England's martyrs and to do it in English. He's enough of a scholar to feel that publishing in English is crass pandering to the mass market. Um, when he sends the finished book to his old Oxford college, he sends it with a covering letter in Latin, of course, apologizing for having dumbed down. Um, still, he did it. This is the famous title page of the first edition from 1563. It's, it's worth a closer look. So first, the title. The book is uniformly known as Fox's Book of Martyrs, but he actually calls it Acts and Monuments of These Latter and Perilous Days. So it's both remembering that the danger has now passed for the time being, but with that phrase, latter and perilous days, implying that these executions are one of the signs of the times, the nearing end of the world, and therefore if there's a brief lull in the persecution now, no one should imagine that their troubles are over. And specifically, if you look further down the title, um, he's remembering the cruelties inflicted by the Romish prelates, especially in this realm of England and Scotland. Um, there's, of course, no such place as this realm of England and Scotland. There are two kingdoms which are ancient enemies and have only very, very recently been brought into alliance by their shared commitment to the Protestant Reformation. In fact, there are very few Scottish martyrs in his story. Fox has some trouble making good on that part of his promise. Um, but he's, he's determined to assert that united identity for the whole island. Um, and he also, as you can see, takes the story back to the year of our Lord, a thousand. That's not an arbitrary round number as a starting point. It's the date, according to one reading of the New Testament, when the devil was unchained. Fox and others linked that to the long-standing tale of how Pope Sylvester II, who was Pope in the year 1000, was a sorcerer who'd conjured the devil, and this gave rise to the notion that ever since then the Roman Church had in fact been controlled and directed by Satan himself. That's just the title, but look at what's going on around it. At the top, of course, you've got Christ in glory emphasizing, as any good Protestant would, that God is absolutely sovereign, that nothing takes place without his permission, that all the forces of evil have only as much power as he chooses to allow them, and that in the end, they will all be trampled beneath his feet. And the angels on his left and on his right proclaim his glory, but below that, the stories diverge. 
At his right hand is the true church, who proclaim God's mercy. And at his left, the false church, the church of Antichrist, whose fate declares God's justice. And so on this side, you have the martyrs in heaven, again with their trademark palms, praising God. And here, the persecutors in hell, tormented by demons, are also praising him because the fact of their punishment demonstrates his justice. And then if we move down the page, we see, again, the same parallel pair of stories, moving from the church triumphant in heaven to the church militant on earth. The martyrs praise him as the flames lick around them, whereas on this side, amongst the false church, they're idolaters and blasphemers. And here, they're praising not God, but this piece of bread. In the mass, they're worshipping the bread as if it were God. For, for Protestants, that's the most extreme blasphemy. And then at the bottom, we've got images of the two, of the, the two churches in their essence. So in the true church, the preacher, who, as, as you can see, is bearded like Cranmer himself, none of, 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 of your shaven-headed and, and tonsured priests here, um, leads his people in understanding the word of God. The women have got their Bibles open on their laps so they can follow him. There are no idols. You do have the anti-idol in the corner, the Hebrew letters of the name of God. This is the closest Protestants will let themselves come to a visual depiction of the sacred. Whereas in the false church on this side, the women click clack on their rosaries instead of reading, of, of, of reading anything. Um, and most of the people are not listening to a preacher at all, but are going on this idolatrous procession to the shrine and the bishop here in his lordliness has his, his minions carry a canopy over him to assert his pomp. So this book does much more than just assemble the stories of the martyrs of Mary's reign. It weaves them into a narrative, a single sacred story of which all of them are exemplars. And it's a monumental book, as the title suggests. It's deliberately vast, 1,800 folio pages in this first edition, including reams of original documents. Fox was a careful and a precise historian. He certainly selects his material, and he will deliberately suppress things that don't fit his story. But he doesn't make stuff up. And he also doesn't accept what he's told uncritically. His unpublished papers are full of materials which were sent to him and which he thought too dubious or problematic to include. There were nevertheless quite a few mistakes in this first edition. Most of them pretty minor, one or two more embarrassing ones, like the tale of the persecuting Catholic magistrate, who, as he says, by God's providence, died a horrible death soon afterwards, but who, when the book was published, indignantly protested that he was alive and well and living in Suffolk. The criticism which these mistakes attracted led Fox to redouble his efforts. The second edition, which appeared seven years later in 1570, is a thorough rewrite, much more meticulously researched, now running to over 2,300 pages. And as you can see in the ominous change to the title, it is now the first volume. Um, two volumes of this covering two million words, two and a half times the length of the Bible. And now, instead of starting at the year 1000, it's taken back to the time of the first apostles and to the Roman persecutions. One continuous story of the sufferings of Christ's people at the hands of Antichrist's minions. There is a bitter irony to this book. 
which is that John Fox himself was not in the business of fomenting nationalism and religious war. He believed something which in this period was very unusual, eccentric even. He believed that killing people for their religious beliefs, any religious beliefs, was wrong. He was very clear that Catholicism was a demonic plot, but when Elizabeth I's government started executing Catholic priests, Fox did his best to intervene to stop it, to no avail, of course. Having started as a cheerleader for Elizabeth, he becomes increasingly disillusioned. The later editions of his book are progressively more open about celebrating figures who opposed priestly tyranny and even those who taught pacifism. And while his book is in English and chiefly about England, he never lost the international perspective of those years in Basel. The book always includes accounts of other parts of the world. England's story is, is presented as part of that wider tale. He genuinely did not intend his books to become a manifesto for violent religious nationalism. And yet that's what happened. The book itself is republished four times in Fox's lifetime, regularly thereafter. Updated editions keep appearing at moments of hair-trigger religious tension. In 1641, as England is teetering on the brink of civil war. In 1684, as they're awaiting the accession of a Catholic king, James II, publishers rush out new editions of Fox, just in case anyone had forgotten what Catholics do and why good Englishmen should fight them. But of course, these are huge books beyond most people's means, prestige projects, and printed in small numbers. The real achievement was to get something like this into the nation's bloodstream. And, and that happens in two main ways. One of them is the cut-down versions, the miniature foxes, foxes' greatest hits, which summarize the most famous and compelling stories and promise readers that there was a great deal more where that came from. You didn't need to know too much about the quality in order to feel the weight of those two fat volumes. And the book itself is a more public phenomenon than we might imagine. It's not the case that a copy of it was made available in every parish church in England. You'll still see, sometimes see that claim made. It can't have been. There were never enough copies printed for that. But plenty of churches did acquire them. They're kept in the building, on chains, so that anyone can come and read them. The Bishop of London ordered that all 100 of the city's parishes buy it, partly because John Fox is an old friend of his and he's trying to help him balance his books. Um, reading the book is a social, not a private activity. There are some hints that parish ministers actually read Fox's book aloud during services in place of a sermon. Francis Drake took a copy with him on his circumnavigation in the late 1570s and read from it to his men on board ship reminding them when they're on the other side of the world who and what the Spanish really were. Fathers read it to their families and to their servants during household prayers, the full book if they're wealthy or one of these abridged versions if they're not. And even if you couldn't read and there was no one who could read to you, there's the most compelling aspect of Fox's book, the pictures. Dotted all through the book are these little images, all of them very like each other. I needed to include that one on the, on the right because of the bit with the dog. Um, all of these very, very much like each other, and in fact, sometimes there, there, there's, there's, there's repetition. You know, the same one is, is reused to be somebody else. Um, but generally, they're distinct enough that their repetition is like a set of hammer blows. Again and again and again, the saints lifting their eyes and hands to heaven as the flames take them. 
And occasionally you have these more sumptuous full-page illustrations. A lot of the surviving copies don't have these anymore because people cut them out and stuck them on their walls, sometimes even colored them in. Some of them reinforced a particularly striking tale, like maybe the most notorious single atrocity of all. This is a case not from England, but from the island of Guernsey, a separate jurisdiction whose legal structures were, were less well-developed. Um, this would certainly have been illegal in England, and I like to think it wouldn't have happened. Anyway, according to the story Fox told, and he seems not to have made this up, um, he certainly wasn't challenged over it um, by people who would have been in a position to prove him wrong. Um, according to the story that we have, um, Perrottine Massey was pregnant when she was arrested and condemned for heresy in 1556. Her pleas to be allowed to deliver her baby before execution were rejected, and she went into labor at the stake itself, gave birth, and tried to pass the newborn baby out of the flames to safety, only for the child to be thrown back into the fire to die with its mother. But we also have illustrations of the major figures in the story, Bishop Bonner of London, who becomes in Fox's hands a pantomime villain of cruelty, here lasciviously whipping a suspect in his garden. This is so shocking that even his own men are hiding their faces in shame. Or Bonner, again, holding a suspected heretic's hand in the candle flame to give him a taste of the fire to come. And that's a deliberate nod ahead to the most iconic story of all, of course, Cranmer holding his own hand in the fire. I don't intend to put too much weight on Fox. The persecution under Mary would certainly have been seared onto Protestant England's memory anyway. The orders of service which Elizabeth's church issued at the beginning of the reign avoid any kind of reference to recent history, but increasingly they begin to mention the horrible fires that England had been delivered from. Look back to the sharp trial which God made of us in the reign of Queen Mary and praise God for how Elizabeth's succession had saved her people from tyranny. By 1585, public prayers were recalling the late days of persecution when the bodies of the saints were burned in our streets. Fox wasn't the only writer to remember the martyrs. They left plenty of friends and pupils behind them who were ready to treasure their memory. Fox himself was involved in a project to collect and publish their prison writings. Regardless of the source of the stories, they seeped into the nation's consciousness. If not everybody could have had a copy of Fox, those who did have it treasured it. One pious merchant from Exeter claimed that he'd read it cover to cover seven times. A reading group in Essex in the 1580s met regularly to read from Fox to one another. Puritans did it, but so did advocates of the more ceremonial Protestantism that would eventually become Anglicanism. The famous community at Little Gidding in Cambridgeshire heard Fox's book read to them weekly. One preacher, recommending Fox's book to his flock, said that the very pictures of the fires and martyrs cannot but warm thee. And it seems to have been true. It warmed people, of course, with indignation against Catholics, but if you'll forgive the term, it also fired their imaginations. To read these stories in a time of ease and safety was to engage in a kind of pious fantasizing, to ask yourself, if it were me, would I stand firm? Would I really be faithful? Would I have the courage to hold my hand in the fire? In the 17th century, one woman remembered how, as a seven-year-old girl, I began to examine myself on this manner. What wouldst thou do if thou shouldst be tempted to deny Christ and be called on to suffer for his sake as some of thy kindred were in Queen Mary's time? What 
evidence we have suggests that she was by no means alone in that thought. The burnings were real. The memories were authentic for the most part. The admiration for the martyr's heroism and the persecutor's cruelty was, with all the contextualization in the world, justified. As so often with atrocity stories, the damage came from how they shaped the way that they saw the world around them in their own time. Because new stories kept coming which could be made to fit into the narrative. The rebellion of the Northern Earls in 1569, the Pope's excommunication of the Queen in 1570, the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre in 1572, the sack of Antwerp by Spanish troops in 1576, the Spanish Armada in 1588, the gunpowder plot in 1605, the crushing of the Protestants of Bohemia in 1620, the Irish Rebellion in 1641. It's all a single story once viewed through this lens, a story of Catholic cruelty. And it tells you, as plain as the pictures in Fox's book, that this is what will befall England if just one of this battalion of plots is ever to succeed. In 1617, an eight-year-old girl in Northamptonshire heard her elders talk about worrying foreign news and a possible invasion. I will remember, she later recalled, that at this time, hearing some talk of their cruelty and hearing of the joys of those martyrs that suffered for the Protestant religion, I was very apprehensive of their blessedness. In a little girl, that produces nothing worse than nightmares. In her elders, those sorts of fears, those convictions so firmly rooted as to be truisms of what Catholics are, those things lead to preemptive actions. This is what draws England into wars in the Netherlands and in France, what drives Elizabeth I, much against her instincts, to cut off her Scottish cousin's head. And they do more than anything else to drive the wars which engulf first Scotland, then Ireland, and lastly England in the 1630s and 40s. It's only at that point in the mid-17th century that Queen Mary I is given the nickname Bloody Mary. Earlier generations were as yet too respectful of their monarchs to openly blame her. But the name has stuck, and it's now indelible. So that is how the English learned to hate Catholics, and it was a lesson well learned. Fear of Catholics was used to justify systematic massacres and mass expulsion of Irish Catholics. It drove a decade-long political crisis in the 1670s and 80s, based on the fear of what another Catholic monarch might do. It sparked a grimly farcical panic about an entirely invented popish plot in 1678 to 81, which resulted in at least 22 executions. A century on, an attempt to loosen anti-Catholic laws in 1778 to 80 led to mass demonstrations, the so-called Gordon riots, eventually put down by the army with a death toll almost equaling Mary's body count. Further attempts to relax the laws caused paralyzing political crises in 1801 and 1829, in both cases bringing down prime ministers. The restoration of the Catholic hierarchy, the bishops in England, in 1850 provoked a wave of protest, including a grand anti-popish procession against the papal aggression. In Victorian times, there was a rash of monuments erected to the Marian martyrs, like this one in Oxford, um, and this 
ironic one in my old hometown of Gloucester to Bishop Hooper, who was burned there. Um, Bishop Hooper regarded his bishop's robes as idolatrous rags, and he only wore them under excruciating pressure. But the evangelical Victorian Anglicans who wanted to commemorate him as a martyr did not share those prejudices. Um, and as ever, memorialization is about the needs of the people who are doing it, not the people who are being remembered. In the 20th and 21st centuries, this legacy of prejudice has been at its most explicit in Northern Ireland, where loyalist marching banners still regularly feature the Marian burnings. But those of us on this side of the water shouldn't kid ourselves that we're free of it. British law still requires the monarch to be a Protestant. Until 2011, the monarch was banned from marrying a Catholic. Britain has not yet had a Catholic prime minister. Tony Blair converted to Catholicism shortly after he left office in 2007. His inclination to convert was an open secret well before that, but he plainly felt that to convert while in office would risk stirring up troubles best left to slumber. The sexual abuse scandals which have broken over the Catholic Church in the 21st century are appalling in their own right. But to understand the way in which that story has gripped the wider culture while comparable scandals in other religious or secular institutions have not, we need to appreciate that this is still, even now, the way atrocity stories work. They take facts and they give them meaning by weaving them into a longer story. The abuse scandals have fallen on still fertile soil. They've fed long-established patterns of anti-Catholicism in societies that are still primed to hear tales of a cruel hierarchy whose religion is a cloak for its authoritarian instincts and its brutal lusts. Of course, both the Marian persecution and the modern abuse crisis are real, and both of them are appalling crimes in any age. We don't need to doubt that to also recognize a centuries-old, only half-acknowledged fact of life that in much of the English-speaking world, Anti-Catholicism is the last respectable prejudice. Thank you. Mm -hmm.